0: Welcome and let's First Talk Compliance. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of the No Surprises Act, What You Need to Know. Effective January 1st, 2022, the No Surprises Act has implications for patients, providers, and insurance companies alike. The impetus behind the legislation, as well as the regulations, is to prevent patients from receiving bills for certain services that were performed or delivered by providers out of their plans network. The scope is limited, and providers and plans alike need to take steps to understand the appeal process. When a payment or claim is challenged, the purpose of this episode is to provide a brief overview of the evolution of the United States healthcare system and its relevance to the No Surprises Act. From there, the No Surprises Act and the regulations will be explained along with the appeal process. Finally, compliance tips will round out the show. Before we begin, I'd like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this episode, we're spotlighting Super Ninja Julie Garcia, Business Office Manager at Coastal Vascular Center. Julie says Coastal Vascular Center has three office locations, and yet the whole group works as a team. They all respond well to the compliance updates and changes. I'm fortunate to have such a close-knit, caring group of professionals to work with every day. Congratulations, Julie. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. So thank you, Rachel, for joining me on First Talk Compliance. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's always my pleasure to collaborate with you and engage in another timely topic
0: great can you tell me a little bit more about the no surprises act
1: absolutely so the no surprises act is premised on surprise medical billing and as many of us have experienced if we were treated for example in an emergency room or out of network in particular, meaning that we could have been out of the um, state skiing and our network didn't reach quite that far and we needed emergency care through the emergency room and in particular, perhaps a knee surgery or we needed to have a compound fracture fixed, something like that. The surprise medical billing is a receipt of different bills from different providers. And as we know, using the emergency room example, oftentimes the facility sends a bill and then the emergency room physician may send a bill and then the radiologist sends a bill and then a particular subspecialist, such as a cardiologist or an orthopedic surgeon may also send a bill. So. The premise behind the No Surprises Act is that they wanted to eliminate the undue hardships being placed on individuals who are the recipients of these bills. And as you can imagine, from a practical standpoint, oftentimes if a person doesn't pay the bill, it gets sent to collections and can have an impact adversely on their credit report. So all of those factors led to the passage of the No Surprises Act, which was part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which was signed into law on December 27th of 2020 and became public law 116-260. So this was part of a larger larger law? Absolutely. And the way I like to analogize this is, as you know, the High Tech Act is a title Mm -hmm. in the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act of 2009. That's the easiest way to analogize the Consolidated Appropriations Act and the No Surprises Act. What led to
0: Congress passing the No Surprises Act?
1: So as the September 7th, 2020 ABA article indicates, and as we see being carried through into Title I, which is known as the No Surprises Act, it's surprise billing and the shock of getting a bill, which is exorbitant.
0: Why do you think they didn't pass something like this previously? Why did they pass this now?
1: I think there are a multitude of reasons. I think uh, first and foremost, some states already had uh, similar laws in place, although as of December 2021, there were 17 states that did not have these types of protections for individuals. Another reason is the escalating cost of healthcare. And I do believe that COVID was a factor in that as many individuals were hit, as we know, with hospitalizations and really expensive care. And so I think that is uh, another reason why this reemerged to the forefront. Obviously, this is something that people, consumers and some providers as well have been talking about and dealing with for several years. So the concept itself is nothing new, but I really do think that escalating healthcare costs COVID 19 and the gap in state laws is what led to its passage at this time.
0: Why do you think they made it a federal law instead of just keeping it for states to decide for themselves?
1: I think that the overarching issue, again, is um, for those who may want to go and listen to the webinar that we did where i did the history of the u.s health system and how our health insurance landscape evolved along those lines we see a couple of items a we see the federal employee health benefits program being impacted by the no surprises act and we also see uh, government programs as well additionally a lot of Health plans spanned over more than one state, and that's an area, I think, that is notable as well as to why it became a federal law and wasn't left to the states. I think you're exactly right, given the gap of 17 states, which is pretty significant that still about one-third of all states didn't have any protection for its state citizens.
0: Were those 17 states in one particular area, or
1: were they scattered? They were scattered, and they include uh, regions, Alaska and Arkansas. It's, It's really all over the board. All
0: right. Okay, yes, and I liked your illustration about, of course, when you're on vacation, and a lot of us do travel, and of course, skiing is a great example, and that's a risky sport. As both uh, you and I know, and some anything can happen. Or if you go to the beach and you're surfing or whatever, you know, something can happen. Who knows? And you don't want, yeah, of course, some surprise, awful bill to happen. So, very good. Okay, so let me see what the next question that we had come up. Are there any other types of services that are covered other than emergency services, non-emergency services from non-participating Providers at participating facilities and air ambulance service from non participating providers.
1: Could you repeat that one more time, please?
0: Yes. 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 So, are there any other types of services that are covered other than emergency services, such as non emergency service from non participating providers at participating facilities? and things such as air ambulance service from non-participating providers. So it's kind of like opposite type of things.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And that's what uh, I utilize the rule of threes uh, throughout this presentation, because it's so important to appreciate that the no surprises bill not only applies to emergency settings. We also know that it, does not apply to urgent care centers so if you're going into an urgent care center the law doesn't apply to those we also know that if you go into a provider network and you're treated by a non in network provider that that non in-network provider cannot balance bill either. And then finally, as we saw and was articulated in the comments, as well as the ABA's article, and quite frankly, a lot of legislative hearings or hearings before Congress, basically air ambulance surprise billing can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So yes, that is one reason that Air ambulance services in particular were included as part of the No Surprises Act.
0: Okay, when you say you said urgent care centers, is that you're talking about the standalone ones that you find on the highway, or are you talking about ED departments?
1: Well, I think that that's a great question because we see like the minute clinics, right? Or I live in Houston and the H, some of the HEB supermarkets have urgent care right. associated with them. And so I think it depends on the facility and how they're designated, but that's something you really need to ask. I know personally, I've gone to freestanding ERs that are not connected with a health system in the Houston area. And I've learned that my insurance that was definitely out of network but because it was considered an urgent care center it would not fall under this balance bill uh, protection either so it's going to be a case by case basis and if you're unsure ask when you go into that facility
0: okay and what's the can you explain one more time about the air ambulance what's so what's the deal with air ambulances again
1: Well, air ambulances, as we know, are typically used in severe trauma situations or evacuation situations, whether it's a significant car accident on an interstate or sometimes with hiking or those types of
0: Mm -hmm. accidents.
1: And with the air ambulance, you should have that provision in your contract and the same Parameters that apply to emergency services really apply here with air ambulance services too. So if you're, and I'm making up this number, if your health insurance plan pays $10,000, right, for that type of service,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the cost that is billed by the air ambulance company is $100,000, they cannot balance bill you for $90,000 as a patient. Okay. So again, it's similar to being on vacation, right? Being completely out of network and needing that emergent care. And typically if you're in an air ambulance, you're not conscious anyhow.
0: True, true. I guess I'm just thinking about those kind of like awful situations of, you know, what if you're in, well, I guess it would depend on if you're in, let's say the Caribbean or something. And I guess it would depend on if you're at, Maybe, you, would it depend if you're at, say, U.S. Virgin Islands versus, I guess, the Bahamas? I mean, I guess That's I'm the wings, obviously.
1: That's an excellent question. And I recently traveled internationally, and uh-huh. I actually, one country required air evacuation uh-huh. coverage, and mm-hmm. I actually have separate air vac coverage and i've had it for years in the event that something were to happen uh, while i was out of the country the key here is to read your plan because as you know it may say it applies to the continental united states and territories or it might apply to all 50 states in the district of columbia you really need to read and see what the parameters are because uh, How often does another country accept a US health plan insurance, right? right? Unless you're at an HCA hospital in London that may already have that infrastructure set up, or at University of Pittsburgh Hospital in Italy, where they have a branch, or at Mayo Clinic in Dubai. I think those may be your exceptions, but in general, I think that you need to have a plan that's going to cover some type of air and make sure that your plan does before you go abroad right yeah because those situations i mean
0: the situation where you have a u.s hospital abroad is extremely rare few and far between so you would have to have some kind of coverage some kind of outside coverage i would assume
1: exactly and as you know a lot of i'll call them higher end credit cards have that coverage available Uh, it just depends on your card and whether or not you can buy that as part of trip insurance or whatever it is. There, There are ways around it, but absolutely you have to read your EOBs. And just having done that in August, I noticed that mine did not cover international air vac. So like I said, I've had a different plan for years because of that.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance, as part of our commitment to provide high-quality complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Rachel V. Rose, J.D., M.B.A., principal with Rachel V. Rose Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of the No Surprises Act: What You Need to Know. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us and subscribe on all forms of social media. I have a question about Independent Dispute Resolution, IDR. Can you tell us what that is first and then how does the
1: process work? Absolutely. IDR is a form of alternative dispute resolution. As we know, historically, we think of alternative dispute resolution as mediation or arbitration. And IDR it can be thought of as a form of alternative dispute resolution. But here, it's called independent dispute resolution. And the Federal Register outlined the steps for this IDR process. I think it's important to note that for those individuals who have ever read their explanation of benefits, as a consumer, we have a right to appeal a denial of coverage, right? Or we have a right to appeal a charge. So the underlying concept of this IDR is not. Far fetched. In fact, it's based on decades of similar processes being in place. But what's important for providers who fall under the umbrella of the No Surprises Act is they want to make sure that they have the IDR process defined in their policies and procedures because there are timeframes that need to be met or that opportunity is lost. So basically, the initiating party sends a required form with sufficient information to identify the disputed services within 30 business days from the date the provider or facility receives initial payment or denial of payment. This 30 business day open negotiation period enables the parties to negotiate an agreed rate by the last day, and if an agreement is not reached, then either party may initiate IDR. To initiate IDR within four business days following that 30-day period, a party submits a notice through the federal IDR portal, which is a public website maintained by CMS. The initiating party must do the following. Identify its preferred certified IDR entity and include material information about the dispute, including the qualifying payment amount. The QPA is basically the plan or issuer's median in-network rate. Now, once the IDR is selected within 10 business days, the parties each submit a respective offer for a payment amount expressed both as a dollar amount, and as a percentage of qpa a description of the party is also required so for example a provider's practice size and specialty other information may be submitted however there are also exclusions such as the medicare fee schedule so within 30 days after the idr entity selection the idr entity must select one of the offers submitted and are required to choose the offer closest to the QPA unless additional material information on a variety of different subjects, such as market share in relation to the relevant geographic region, is provided. So that's pretty much the process in a nutshell and why it's imperative to have it outlined in policies and procedures.
0: Administration must really pay close attention to the specific time frames that are associated with the process, Absolutely. which should be outlined in their policies and procedures.
1: Absolutely. That's no different than if you are filing a lawsuit or if you're the recipient of a lawsuit, right? Under right. the state rules of civil mm-hmm. procedure or federal mm-hmm. rules of civil procedure, you have to get certain things in by certain dates. Otherwise, you either waive it or you have mm-hmm. to act or an extension, and typically you have to meet and confer with the other party in order to put that in front of the court. So something similar. Right.
0: Have any lawsuits been filed objecting to the No Surprises Act?
1: Have any lawsuits been filed objecting to the No Surprises Act? That is actually a great question, and if you think about it, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here, what entities do you think uh, would file a lawsuit?
0: I would think insurance companies.
1: Absolutely, and not only insurance companies, but also the American Hospital Association and the American Medical association and the premise of these lawsuits it's kind of interesting It, it it's premise the premises are that it jeopardizes access to care and if you think about it it seems counterintuitive But basically, these lawsuits are challenging a narrow but critical provision of a rule that, as we know, was issued September 30th of 2021 by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and other government agencies. The specific provision being challenged implicates the arbitration process for determining fair payment. So again, this IDR process that we just talked about for determining fair payment for services by out-of-network providers and effectively upends the requirements specified in the No Surprises Act.
0: Can you expand just a little bit more on that?
1: The lawsuit was filed in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, and basically it says that the new rule places a heavy burden on the scale of an independent dispute resolution process unfairly benefiting commercial health insurance companies. So what the American hospital association said again it goes back to the public policy no patient should fear receiving a surprise medical bill so that's not an issue here and that is why hospitals and health systems supported the no surprises act to protect patients and keep them out of the middle of disputes between providers and insurers so the law itself they're saying congress carefully crafted the law with a balanced patient friendly approach and it should be implemented as intended. So does that make sense? The disconnect is this narrow final or interim final rule that was issued dis- on September 30th of 2021 by HHS. That does make sense. Well, do you have
0: any other advice for our listeners? Any Anything that you might've thought of? Anything that we didn't cover? Any surprises perhaps that we didn't cover? We could discuss this for a long time, so many different types of scenarios, but I think we better wrap up at the moment.
1: No, I think the lawsuit is one to watch as that relates to the ADR process. And I think that for providers having the appropriate policies and procedures, as well as health insurance companies, just understanding what they can and can't do, making sure that if something is out of network and there's an obligation, not in an emergency situation or anything, that they give the notice to the patient that this is out of network and you'll incur a higher rate if you choose to go this route, right? But if the patient is provided with that notice just as medicare patients have to be provided with that notice if it's a service that's not covered by medicare then it's up to the individual patient to make that choice themselves they just need all relevant information before they make that choice i think one key is the policies and procedures and training of all of those individuals who are involved in this process because you need to have your plan B in terms of claim submissions, like I mentioned before, but also you want to make sure that you've worked with your EHR and your claims clearinghouses to make sure that they have their systems set up so that they're not doing the balance billing as well. And finally, in those policies and procedures, making sure you have that IDR outlined as to who you want to use you want to make sure you have the link to the cms website in there that gives you that portal and that you have the dates and timelines in there so that you can check that off in the event that it needs to be utilized
0: okay great well i wanted to thank you so much for being here i very much appreciate it
1: well thank you and I look forward to our next one. It's always my pleasure to collaborate with you and First Healthcare Compliance.
0: Thank you. It's it's our extreme pleasure also. So I look very much forward to our next collaboration. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you Catherine. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Katherine at FirstHCC.com. I'm Kathryn Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.